think of care really as a commitment to mutuality, this idea that we are all interconnected and we foreground a loving, compassionate, kind way of seeing other human beings. Care itself is the act of participating in that system of mutuality, that system of loving, that system of taking, taking people's well-being as something to fight for, as something to Welcome to Transforming Care. This week we are talking with Anne-Marie Douglas. She is the founder and CEO of Peer Power. Anne-Marie is someone who centers love and empathy in all the work she does. Too often in the care system we are forced to confront the most difficult and traumatizing boundaries of humanity. We have to face up to the realities of things that are really hard to deal with. And if we don't have the right support around us, or we don't deal with these things in ways that are healthy for us, life can become dark, as it is for so many children and young adults out there. It is our job as a society to support those who have been through things like this in the most compassionate, sincere and unflinching way possible. As a society, we should spare nothing to support young people who have had to go through trauma rather than cutting services to save money. We should demand that young people are given power and autonomy and trust that they know what is best for them. There are a lot of catchphrases in the charity sector and if you work in or have experienced it, you will have heard terms like psychologically or trauma-informed environment, youth-led and so many more. These concepts can be really valuable and they come from a place of deep research and understanding of what people need to reach their potential. And they're grounded in ideas from liberation psychology and from thinkers that advocate for autonomy against power structures. They are based on radical ideas that are designed to unchain people from the shackles of control exerted on them from institutions that have been designed to maintain their own existence and their own relevance over anything else. The power structures that these ideas try to enable us to free ourselves from are replicated through society and can be identified not only in our interactions with state power but in the charity sector as well. And while the ideas of liberation psychology and autonomy are at their core revolutionary, they have been co-opted by the charity industrial complex, by funders and by state institutions. The idea of a psychologically informed environment is, in part, meant to recognise the potential of institutions to replicate and reinforce trauma, and to create an environment that is able to identify where this happens and rectify it. For example, a charity that provides inadequate housing where there is little light, the appliances are broken, or the walls are stained, becomes a physical replica of an environment that contributes to an initial trauma. If someone has had an experience of living in a trap house, for example, it is likely that their environment may have been one that was not adequately clean, was dark, or where things were broken. However, because psychologically informed environments, PI, 
became a buzzword for funders, a lot of charities started doing a day or two of pie training and saying they were psychologically informed, even when they were exactly the opposite. This week, Anne-Marie offers us her perspective on a way of working that is grounded in respect, understanding and empathy. She is someone who, as is clear in this episode, cares deeply about the lives of others and strives to see a world where we value young people who have experienced trauma and return the levers of power into the hands of those who have been subjugated for so long. From our conversation, I felt that she truly embodies the ideas of the psychologically informed environment without simply paying lip service to it. In this episode, we talk about Amory's journey into the work and she offers us an insight into the world that she hopes to live in and is working hard to bring about. This episode was recorded in November of 2019, before our most recent general election. It was an honour and a pleasure talking with Anne-Marie, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. day because yesterday we were I was at an award ceremony um, giving an award for youth justice and then today we're up for an award for outstanding organization at the criminal justice alliance awards oh wow and also the launch of a report about lived experience um, valuing lived experience in the system amazing so yeah it's a good day and seeing you guys yeah it's it's, uh, really great to speak to you and um, I think I remember I first kind of became aware of peer power before the um, Youth Justice Review with, I think we, maybe we were both at an event, I don't know, maybe you weren't there, but um, New Horizon Youth Centre um, for, who was it? Sir? Um, it could have been Charlie Taylor. It was the Charlie was Taylor Review, yeah. Review. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and were you guys involved in that quite heavily or...? Did you come to an event in London, yeah. a rich mix? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we led to that in yeah. partnership with Beyond Youth Custody. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, because uh, at the time the government were um, looking at a review into the whole of the youth justice system and we were, of course, really passionate that young people's voices were involved. And, and Charlie Taylor, I think, came to, I think, possibly the London one, but we did a Birmingham one as well for other young people uh, from other areas to come and the team came to that. So it was great for them to hear firsthand yeah, from young um, people. And do you think, how much of an effect do you think that had? On the review? On the review, yeah. Um, I think that started a catalyst for there being more of a commitment to listening to young people in the system. Um, And certainly we looked at the different... I think the interim review was out at that point and it was pre the final report. So I think it gave young people a chance to look at what the government was sort of proposing, and certainly Charlie Taylor was, and then to comment. So there was, from memory, a section on secure schools and um, I think therapeutic interventions, something like that, and then people could comment 
And then um, as far as I know that, you know, those young people spoke in those. And then Charlie Taylor was also really active at listening to young people as he went around the country as well. Yeah, definitely. I think, and because I remember I had two young people who we went to a kind of, um, you know, uh, a day of activities, I guess, of young people giving their experiences. And I kind of thought, like, I thought it was really good. And at the time, I was really enthusiastic about it. I had two young people that I was supporting um, who were coming out of custody. And they, and we went over from Bristol and we came up to London and we were like, yeah, this is great. Looking back on it, I think, what is there a point where like young people can, can be exploited for their stories and, and you know, I think you see it with the care system quite a lot where young people's stories like this like the idea of like telling your story is meant to be this super powerful thing mm. and unfortunately is something that young people in care have to do over and over and mm -hmm. over again and at what point is that actually useful for effect, like you know for affecting change. I was wondering if you had any kind of perspectives on that. I've got probably quite strong views on it. Um, in my experience, I've seen it be transformational when it's been done at a level where they've actually then seen change happen as a result. Um, I think that that, that then can be trans transformational and a part of kind of pro-social, you know, academics call it sort of desistance theory in terms of youth justice. Um, and I think if you felt unheard about your views and wishes in a system, that can be quite empowering experience. But if it's done in a way, as you say, where people have asked over and over and then services ask for it or they're unsupported in that process, I think is the real key. And if people are doing it without kind of a trauma-informed lens on it and without wraparound support, it can be very dangerous. Um, at PeerPal, we've really worked hard on this, and, and we've we've learned the hard way. Really, um, we've had difficult situations in conferences, and where people have told their stories, and then actually we have a check-in afterwards. So was that empowering or disempowering? And where was the power in the room? And how did it feel? And I guess we've we've now come to a place where um, two cohorts now of peer power experts have contributed to um, a peer power storytelling code of ethics. And we refresh that all the time. We use that at every event we go to. We ask professionals, we, we, make, we have an announcement at the beginning that we want them all to look at it. And then there's sort of a, a condensed version, which is the Respect Charter, which I actually just tweeted a couple of days ago. I'm really happy to share with anyone. And that really talks about not looking at just a single story, um, respecting lived and learned experience in the room and trying to... Um, if I give you a, an example at its worst, if we support young people to maybe uh, help services to get better through their own experiences, if we're supporting young people to tell their stories powerfully and not from a trauma perspective and not kind of starting with this sad story and actually looking at where's the power and the strength in the story and how can they influence services as a result... You do that and you prep and support young people to, to participate in that way. But you go in an environment where professionals are not ready to receive them in that way because either they don't, <clears throat> there's still that power dynamic there, or they ask them questions that are, frankly, entirely inappropriate and um, sometimes quite shocking, actually, from the, perhaps the um, professional backgrounds that they're from. And some of it's curiosity. Um, I think our young people are quite well supported and they're pretty uh, assertive at saying that's not why I'm here, that's not an appropriate question. Um, 
So yeah, it's a really difficult subject. Um, I think the really important thing is that if young people have done that work through, we do narrative therapy here, so kind of strengths-based storytelling. If they've got that down, then the way they want to tell their story, the positives and strengths in it, they can't really be moved from that once they go into that kind of environment. Um, I think that's really important. But you've got to do the work, and it's got to be supported. You know, we do... Uh, we've got well-being work, we're putting sports therapy in, we've got a clinical psychologist, um, they do loads of well-being work here. So I think, and then there's the obvious peer support that exists within what we do. Um, and we hold agencies accountable. And I think where I met you back then, your peer power, I think, was not even one then. And we were really just sort of going into and um, trying to challenge a little bit some of those systems to really listen yeah um that's amazing i i didn't know you were so it's such a young organization mm-hmm. but it, was, it must have been 2016 yeah we're three and a half now three and, three a, and half. a half years of charity we were probably wow. going about four years okay um yeah i think there was a couple there's a couple things in there that i find really interesting and, and you kind of notice at the moment in the sector you like being trauma informed is is something that i've you know that has started to pop up everywhere. And mm-hmm. I know in, in charities, kind of a lot of the time, they want to use it as a, like either a way to get funding or as a kind of like buzzword and people don't really know what it means. Um, and so maybe like talking about, a little bit about like what being trauma-informed means, but also like what is what is like wellness? So like the idea that young people um, in precarious situations are often like pathologized and like and I don't know I was talking to a friend of mine um yesterday in fact who he's blind and he has he he sees that uh, like a similar thing happen in the disabled community where it's like okay obviously the outcomes and and the services and the, and you're affected it, people in that in those environments or people uh, experiencing kind of those challenges like of of um being disabled in one way or having come from care or come from custody they they experience maybe worse outcomes but also there's a thing of like oh well you must be unwell or or like it, you must be coming from a place of trauma so i was wondering like if you could talk a little bit to that tension and whether that is something you've noticed or um, whether like the pathologi- pathologization yeah. um, of young people in care or long, young people leaving custody is something that ever crops up? Um, I suppose from our perspective here, we would very much cite the young person as the expert in their own life, and, and we're always we're pretty purist about that. Um, we, we certainly wouldn't pathologise um, young people here, but we would say that we work in a trauma-responsive way in that we're really... It's part of our work to be very open mm-hmm. about our backgrounds. So even, you know, the team that work here is the bring-your-whole-self-to-work team, you know. It's the same people you are at home as you are at work. We're very emotionally open here. We do talk about well-being all the time, um, from the trustee meetings, the team meetings, when the young people are in, um, and it's very rooted and embedded in our approach. And that, and, I, and I'm wondering, with what you're saying now, is 
is that then, are we saying that there's an assumption then that the young people that come to us are unwell? Um, and I don't think that's the case. I think it's a recognition that we all need to be aware of, of our... Um, we don't exist just in this place. So when young, young teenagers and young adults come here, when I come here, when you guys come here, you're coming from other contexts. And those are things that um, you might be arriving with stuff. And then there's the other part that the nature of our work is such that... I mean, I, I, I really strongly believe that if we're asking um, anybody, actually, not just teenagers and young adults, to help services that not only they may have experienced trauma themselves, but then those services might have traumatised them. We're asking them to give up their time, go and help those services, share some of themselves, give of themselves and their time, be committed... And then what do they get in return? You know, and, and actually I think that needs to be a supported process. And there are also skills for life. I mean, I think just as you go, I've learnt as I've gone along the things that, how to manage my stress levels, the, the things that might trigger, you know, emotions, things that have gone in the past. So, um, yeah, I guess it's about having an emotionally well working environment. And also you can't get, you know, there's the... the um, analogy of kind of putting your own gas mask on first. How can you give? If our, our whole model here is around um, love and empathy, and showing showing that to young people and helping them to discover it and sh show it to themselves, so that they can then give it to others by changing systems or living their best lives or whatever that might be. So we have to be okay to do that, and so you have to foster that environment. But I wouldn't. I don't think we medicalise it, I guess, is where I'm going with yeah, this. Yeah. But I would say that we are very open about... And when we're talking about trauma and adversity, we're not talking about ticking off how many adverse childhood experiences you've got. Um, there's a recognition, and of course it's an empathy-based approach, that everybody comes with stuff, and that one person's pain does not trump another person's pain. Um, and I've seen that a lot, actually, in the sector that, oh, you don't fit into this user experience, therefore you're not welcome here. Mm -hmm. And that's really, it's like hugely unhelpful, isn't it? And, yeah. and frankly, really unempathic because we're all coming with stuff. And Whether you're a CEO, a finance person, you know, an expert, it's, everybody's coming with stuff, so... And I think, like, like I think there's a couple of things... Um, you know, I want to pick up on the love and empathy part of peer power, um, maybe in a bit. And but I was, as you were talking, I was thinking like, you know, actually the society that we live in is one that kind of uh, exacerbates. It's traumatized trauma. and yeah. it exacerbates, <laughs> it yeah. exacerbates trauma. I wanted to add to that as well that when we, I think it's important that when we talk about, it's really hard because funders and the system expects you to you have to describe who you work with who your beneficiaries are and we don't want to talk about them as beneficiaries or um service users I hate that <laughs> we talk about them as partners they're part of this there's no us and them they're part of peer power so we're challenging that all the time and again in funding applications they want you to tell you who it says who are the young people that you work with so we have to sort of Oh, they've experienced adversity, trauma, bereavement, neglect, 
um, and then all of the demographics, and it feels uh, it, it's it's it doesn't feel right with our approach. So we started. So we we did our we did our theory of change with young people, and we asked them, "How would you describe yourselves?" And often I start with that, and they've described themselves as being abandoned by society, which is heartbreaking and not very strengths based, you know. And again, it's but that's there. So when I present or I talk to people about what peer power is and who we reach I sort of start with that and then I talk about trauma and adversity but I really do talk about societal adversity, poverty, racism structural inequality and it's all of those things combined actually Um, I wanted to know was that um, the main reason that inspired you to start peer power or is it something much deeper than that? Um, it's lots of reasons um, and some of them I would say have only started to really come to realise in the last six months um, so I started it originally because uh, I suppose my career in this started because I'd gone to work in a primary pupil referral unit um, about 20 years ago quite by accident, ended up there as part of my degree I was a single parent and my daughter was about three and so I go to this place, and the boys there are kind of five to six years old to 11. They've all been excluded from mainstream school. And um, mega social and emotional behavioural difficulties. The teachers in there couldn't cope. They were restrained very badly. It was really distressing to see. And the teachers said about those boys, those little tiny little boys, that they would be future rapists, future murderers. They were going to kill somebody. Um, really, like, horrifying and I never really left that place for a long time. I set up a nurture group there. It's all based around attachment theory. And I guess that started off a vocation. And for the next 10 years, I really worked a lot in Bradford, moving around the justice system and prevention. And it, those same boys' names kept coming up. It's like, oh, well, hello again. Oh, I know them. And all the way through the uh, youth, youth offending team. And then they pretty much all went to prison. So they cost um, a lot of victims caused a lot of hurt to themselves their families their victims they cost a lot of money i'd been sat in loads of meetings with police and you know and social behavior orders and all you know trying to prevent that happening and i thought there's something really structural can't speak structurally wrong here systemically wrong because i know services have really tried to put in everything and it didn't make any difference and then i went to the voluntary sector had a lot more money then actually at the time to start at the time it was a bit more radical but asking young people what it is so I went to the yacht and was kind of I'll take the ones that you can't mix and the ones that you know can't be in a group and we just asked them what what do you want and they said people that have been through similar stuff to us um you know people that have maybe been in the justice system or can relate that's the word young people need to be able to relate so it's essentially empathy isn't it um and we want to be able to decide our own programs so we set up a center and started doing that work and that really started the basis of a real belief in kind of accelerated empathy when you're around people that have lived or from a similar cultural background um yeah and then i I guess started doing lots of work all around the country doing co-production going into youth offending teams asking young people what is it what the solutions to youth crime alongside practitioners and then it didn't matter whether I was in kind of the city or rural or north or south. Um, they were the same answers every time. And again, I was like, 
no one's listening to them and they know where it's at because they're saying all, all the time, they're saying it's relationships, it's always the factor as to whether they engage and the relationships they're having with others and I'd say with themselves. Um, involvement, so knowing their rights, getting involved with services, they wanted more of that, and employment, so they wanted to do things that would help them to get to where they wanted to go and kind of live, live their dreams. So that's kind of the foundations of peer power, that's the foundations of the approach. Um, I just thought, I moved from the north, I'd had enough. It was a really risky thing to do, I'm a single parent, in fact, on hindsight, it was pretty stupid, <laughs> frankly, but I just felt that it really was the time. Um, moved to London, got an office near Victoria, so we're on their doorstep, and we can pester them and make sure they listen to young people, um, and really thought if we just keep keep um, elevating that narrative and getting this, them a seat at the table all the time. And I should add as well, the bit that's probably the bit that really drives me, because it has not been easy, is that in the last 10 years, I'd personally gone through a really, really traumatic incident, and it was peer-led services, and one in particular, that had been designed by people that had been through that exact same thing. And there was nothing else that could have reached me at that time. And I would say that that and a mentor saved my life at that time. Um, and again, that was really empathy-based, that nobody could have got it like like them um, so all of that combined and the more recent journey to be honest I've been lucky enough to be on the spokespersons network led by sound delivery because people have been saying you know I've never I've always believed that CEOs should be in service rather than kind of celebrity so you won't see me at lots of things you know I don't I don't really do that public speaking thing very much I'm also not very comfortable with it um, and as part of that some of it has been determining my own childhood and journey and talking a bit more about that. And in the past six months, I've realised that I've actually got a lot more in common with a lot of the young people. Um, my family is a family that have been in care. And, um, yeah, it's coming to terms with kind of that into how intergenerational trauma plays out and how, I guess, that's informed the work and my real passion for services that are empathy and relational-led and that actually listen and act on the views of those that use them. Oh, thank that you. That wasn't short, was it? <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Um, I just wanted to ask also, what is your personal mission with young people? My personal mission? Oh, wow. Um, do you know, just really, again, it's quite a recent thing that I, I still personally have a lot of barriers around the places that I go to and the people that I mix with so other CEOs and stuff and I'm realizing this is a class thing and that <coughs> if I'm feeling this and my vision is that the young people here at Peer Power go on to be future leaders so they're the commissioners and they're they're at the top of their game and you have a mix of lived and learned experience and then you'll have truly empathic services so if I'm experiencing that and I know I come with privilege as well. I also come with other barriers. So if I don't bash down some of those doors and start saying a bit more loudly, why, well, that's not accessible. And how are working class people going to get there? Or opening up those doors to other places. Um, so I'm on a bit of a personal mission at the moment around that. Um, and it's not just to get me a seat at those tables. It really is with, with them in mind. I want to make it easier for working class people um, and people from diverse backgrounds 
I've got um, like a little question around that, really, which is um, like, I mean, this is a, it might seem like a kind of huge question, maybe one that no one can answer. But mm-hmm. OK, so you've got those kind of structural, uh, not just like inequalities, but you've got systems structured in such a way that is prohibitive mm-hmm. for people from working class backgrounds or from uh, black communities mm-hmm. or from... Uh, refugee communities whatever like that it's a prohibitive structure and i'm thinking of like you know if you go to maybe the houses of parliament or you go to like just the whole way that the political system is is set up it's a very restrictive uh environment and a very like quite an intimidating and scary environment for a lot of people i'm wondering how what your thoughts were on how best to kind of create systems change and and whether it is best done you know by all right so teaching people from those communities their the language of the system to allow them to be able to communicate with you know posh white men in parliament and so once you've got them the seat at the table they're not just at the table and again like maybe exploited for their voice or whatever but actually they are able to speak the same language and communicate and try and convince those people. Or is it like, actually, we should be trying something radically different? And what? It, and if so, like, what is it that we could do that is radically different that would kind of break down those structures mm-hmm. so they're not restrictive and prohibitive? I was wondering if you had any kind of perspectives on that and, and maybe just from your experience, like... Mm-hmm. Um. I would very much like to do something radical to to change those structures. But they are as they are right now. Um, and I don't think we've got time to wait for them to be deconstructed. Um, what I see here, and from my own experience of going into those environments, is that the more you do it, um, the, more, the, the less those environments are scary. And I think that if people say that they're committed to inclusion and diversity and equity, then every time they're taking a space at those places, they should be giving it to somebody else um, who might struggle to get there. Um, I think that would help change things. You know, it's kind of, I think in the ideal, you can go in that room, own your own story, be who you are, and be able to operate in that language. I mean, that's the ideal, but that comes with more access to those environments and that's really important and just doing it every now and again doesn't really cut it mm. you need to be you know that's it's i guess some social mobility in there isn't there as well and and i guess it's i guess you know we're recording this on the 29th of november 2019 <laughs> and so in two weeks time we'll know i guess whether those spaces will be opened up i wonder if that is your perspective but yeah, for me, I feel like, you know, it could be a thing where where those spaces and then those doors are kicked open um, and the accessibility for, you know, um, the working class and, and people of colour and women and gay people and everyone who has been excluded historically might you know things mm. might change but i mean that's i mean i'm an optimist i think that there is a sea change i think there's a movement um and the more and i think if you have privilege 
you should be challenging it everywhere you see it and you have a duty to in my view if it's safe for you to do so and you're able to you should challenge injustice wherever you can Um, I wanted to ask, do you believe that um, all young people who have grown up in care should be activists? And if so, how? I couldn't possibly say that because I would never speak on behalf of young people. That's entirely not what I would ever do. Um, it's quite unusual me even doing this podcast. Um, so no, I don't think that. Um, I think people should do what's right for them at the time and that every, we're all on a journey despite what backgrounds we come from um, and I think for some people uh, they might gain a lot from it and other people it might actually be really really difficult journey it just depends where they are um, I asked that because it seems that because of the system because of um, social services and all the laws and the politics mm. most of it doesn't really work in our favor and it seems that we have to you know wear the shoes of activists or become political and i don't really think that most of us want that i think we just want to have normal lives you know yeah. and it's difficult but i'm just you know glad that there's um charities like peer power that are enabling us to I don't know, be able to have that normal normality as well as um, take a stand mm. for our rights. I think what I see here is, and it's lovely when you see it, uh, because we've got uh, some older young adults who've had to fight the system, unfortunately. They know their rights really, really well. Um, and then, so then when you have some of the younger ones that might be struggling um, to access their rights or they're not getting what they should be, they're straight on it and they are well you should be let me help you let me refer you to this person who helped me and that's the value of peer support that they've already got that knowledge we've got that within our team and then that maybe those young people that looked after will then pay that forward with the next ones that come through it's really powerful actually but you're quite right nobody should have to be doing that because of their circumstances in life it should be that 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 information's freely out there, you know, why isn't it? Mm. And the peer power bit really is that, I keep using the word transformational, but when you see people, uh, especially the ones that have been with us longer or the ones that are on our board, and the younger ones or the ones that have not been with us as long, see them uh, doing a keynote speech or um, the way they lead a group, facilitate a group, um, that, that positive role modelling and knowing that other people have been there and they're thriving and they're really successful, you know, they know that they can achieve that. Thank you. That's really, um, really interesting. And, um, I should add as well that um, we, we call that, and we're going to do a lot more work on it, peer-to-professional. 
Um, and we've got some funding bits at the moment to enhance the offer for peer to professional because just because they come here doesn't necessarily mean that they want a career in health or justice Mm. they really clearly said to us when we were designing peer to professional that we want to um, be what we wanted to be when we were little you know follow your dreams so we want to really expand that offer and offer career coaching and do a lot more around that yeah I mean that's really that resonates with me because I remember working as a support worker and and you know the thing is like if you can get a job in Tesco's then it's you've you've made it you know <laughs> like that's success like and you know I was working with young people who wanted to be like MCs or like artists or whatever and like that and that for me is just like uh you know I remember when I was young like that was not even a uh, I couldn't even think that that would be a viable option and it, some of the most transformational work I think that I ever experienced was being able to get young people into the studio and do the things that they wanted to do, not just like stack shelves or whatever, which seems to be the only thing that society really op- offers people from, especially from like working class communities and and from you know young people in care. It's not there's nothing out there. It's, it seems you know. You mentioned that you. Um come from a family of care leavers so um, with that sort of understanding of how maybe your family grew up in the care system and what you've learned about the care system now do you feel like there's been any improvement or you feel like there's just been a major digression when it comes to caring for the children properly Ooh, that's a hard question I think I would say that that is part of what drives me definitely because I don't think it's adequate. I don't think... Well, we get told all the time, and I know from our experience there's not enough love and relationship in that system. Um, And it's certainly one of our drivers at Peer Power to try and infuse that into systems, into the care system, into the justice system and the health system. Um, I haven't been through it now, so I think I need to start any response with that. But certainly what I hear from young people is that there's still lots of problems. You know, you still hear of there's too many moves, there's too many changes in workers, there's lots of places that still put process over people um, and they're not, there's a move towards relational and working in systems but we're not there yet and it's still a postcode lottery. Um, in my family's case, there are no records. I know from the exp- I know from young people I've worked with when they've tried to get their care records, they might get them now. And so there's, that's improved; you can get them, but they're heavily redacted, right? Yeah, so yeah. then that whole process then of trying to understand. My understanding as well from people who've got their records is that a really problematic thing is the way in which those records are wrote and the way in which young people are talked about in those and their families are talked about in those. And I've often wondered, actually, a more empathic, you know, if you were writing that as if you were writing a letter to your child, would that really impact the way that you were writing it? Um, I'm not saying that practice doesn't happen now because I'm not from, I'm not working in social work. I can just comment on, I guess, the things that I've, learn from young people the things that they've told me 
Um, so there's a lot of improvement still needed without a shadow of a doubt. And if not, then peer power wouldn't have needed to exist, would it? It's um, interesting. Uh, actually, I think it was with you, Joy, that we just, uh, we spoke about it. Um, thinking about the idea of, you know, foster carers, for example, get, and, and residential children's home, anyone and any social worker or any um, support worker, often get like a file of information on young people. You know, you've got their, whatever, their offending history, their family history, you know, reports written, blah, blah, blah. And that is, I think, for, for a lot of people, is a real point of contention, a real problem, because it's, you know, it's dehumanising for a start. We were talking about having... Why not have, like, when a young person is going to the next foster carer, why don't they have, like, a file on the foster carer? You know, mm. like, why don't they get given, <laughs> from like... From other young people. Yeah, from, from other, other young people, yeah. from... You know what I mean? Or, like, from the foster carer or from social services, why aren't there reports written on you know, children's homes and, like, almost, like, TripAdvisor review kind of things where, like, you you know, you could get young it's people... It's a great idea. You know what I mean? We should like, do that. I feel like it has proper legs. Um, yeah, who knows? But we can dream. I think that's about power, though. That's yeah. inherently about power and who holds the power. In those in the end, professionals are very, get very uncomfortable. Some, and I should say, <laughs> some, not all, um, professionals can get uncomfortable when you talk about that stuff and about why and you know why are young people not present in meetings about them you know there's lots of that goes on I mean I noticed that in the Alliance for Young People in Care and Care Leavers and it is a great you know collection of organisations as they are I'm sure um, they there is no young people in that meeting room and there's like 30 charities or whatever who are probably even more who are part of it and you know and people do good work and it's and it's like it could be so much more powerful if there are young people and I don't think that's for lack of trying either like Mm -hmm. it's hard to get I mean who really wants to listen to those like wonky policy stuff you know anyway you know what I mean but but I think young people probably actually are more passionate about a lot of that stuff than a lot of people who you know, no disrespect mm-hmm. to anyone in the Alliance, and you're probably going to be hating me now. <laughs> I think gentle there. challenge is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, a gentle challenge to have some young people. Exactly, around, exactly. And it's the same okay. for the Standing Committee for Youth Justice, I think. like I, I know that they've got moves and they've had some youth, and I know that we've been in talks with them about mm. increasing young people's voices there. And actually, we'd love to do more. So, you know, part of the stuff they do is they send out uh, white papers for comment. Mm. In my ideal world, we'd get all, everybody together and we'd unpick it and get a response, but it's resource as well. Like, oh, you know. But I know there's, there is moves there to, yeah. to do more of that. Again, I'm optimistic. I think there's a sea change around this stuff and I, get, I think it's just... more pe- And people are really open to it. I think uh, it's a bit of a cop-out to say it's hard, you know... I don't, obviously I'm going to say that, I don't think it is, I think the offer's got to be right. Yeah, I agree.
Um, I wanted to ask, do you feel like, I don't really think that soci the social care system is working. I don't think that social services, I don't think it's working at all anymore. Do you feel like we should abolish social care and bring, you know, about organizations like Peer Power and um, charities that are really enabling, enriching and empowering young people? Um, do you think that that's still gonna be the future? Mm, that is a hard question. I mean, you asked about peer power specifically, and peer power was really set up not to exist forever. I really have a vision that it will... I don't own the vision, though, I should say. Um, but my hope is that it, it doesn't last forever. The hope is that the approach and the culture that we're trying to promote um, is embedded then across systems, and that we then... It's, it's that thing about sort of disrupting and helping others to work in a more relational way, in a co-productive way. Um, as to whether social services will exist, I think... I think there needs to be a support for young people in difficulty. I do think that there is um, opportunity and I think there's good opportunity around to redesign services. I don't think that that should necessarily always come from central government, that actually local areas often. And if young people are involved in those conversations around which are the services that are helpful for the different parts of their lives, I think there's an opportunity now to redesign services with young people at the heart. And if that was done more often, you'd find, I think, that services will be more effective and hopefully would work together better because social services doesn't just exist does it it's not just social services there's health and education um justice there's lots of different services isn't there and it's about how how they work together but the experience of those going through it trying to navigate all of them there's a lot of money at stake in it isn't there and it's yeah, there's lots of debate about it being privatised and going to... Um, that actually really nicely leads me on to the, the fact that there is a lot of money that goes through social services. And like you say, Joy, it's not... It doesn't work and it's, an un, like, you know, it's unwieldy in terms of... Culture is very difficult to change. I find that local authorities are often very much embedded in their practice which can often be what well, which is you know across the country evidence points that it is a traumatic uh, environment with with people who are overworked and you know undervalued um but with a lot of money going through it to the point where you know i was talking with someone who was doing the um referring people he was worked with a local authority and they would get young people and it would be it like, right, this person's been kicked out of their foster home or their ch or a children's home. We need to get them into a place today. And if you didn't get them into a place today, they're going to be in the cell. And these are children in the cell for the weekend or whatever. So they end up paying, you know, eight grand a week yeah. to send people to the, like, middle of Wales to a, a, co to a company that is run for profit where the... You know the the CEO has a, like the freshest sports car mm -hmm. that he parks outside this secure unit, or whatever. There's one young person got out, smashed up 
this guy's sports car and it was so lucrative for him to keep that young person there. He didn't press charges, he didn't... Because he's making so much money from that kid being there. And it's like that... When the system is working in that way, how can you change, like, social services or local authority practice kind of incrementally at that point? Like, it, maybe it is just like, actually, we need to rethink how we intervene mm. in young people's lives yeah. and what the I mean, my, my perspective is there's no place for anybody profiting from young people being in any sort of care, or care home... And it's by its very name, it's care. You know, we, f we, we talk about social care, and I often think, where's the care in that system? Um, I, I do think a more radical approach is needed. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the challenges when I set peer power up, so I set it up based on relationships. And where possible, we want to keep those relationships with people should, if they want to um, and my fear was that would we become another because there's loads of amazing charities out there would we become another cog in uh, another relationship in those young people's lives because then we become part of the system we become funding dependent they give you two or three years funding the, the amazing member of staff that you've got that's got the relationship with the young people leaves because they don't know if you're going to have funding next year. So this, is, this plays out across the system. And it doesn't just play out actually in charities. It's the same in the statutory. Um, a lot of that is short-term funding. And so there are more broken relationships on top of all of the others that they've experienced. And I still struggle with that, honestly. And I think that the way, the way that we get around that um, from PeerPal's perspective, is to try and embed that model, that different way of working. Because I truly believe if you've got more empathic services and you're really l having young people involved and designing services through the journeys that they'll have, those services will be better. If you're thinking about the impact on them emotionally, on those, if, if a service ends or a person goes, um, I think that that could have an impact. So I, my hope is that we influence services in that way and I think there's a bigger question again about the re transforming those services and what they need to look like and what I'd like to see one day is that services are community owned because much of what we're talking about is belonging and belonging's one of the biggest things that we all we all need we we need that connection and belonging and if you're Belonging is within a community, and that community then takes takes a role in your care, however that looks. And I don't think, you know, we've got fostering and we've got mentoring, and I'd really love to see um, kind of longer-term support, particularly for young people leaving care or leaving custody, that they are almost adopted by a family, and there's that belonging, and there's someone to, somewhere to go, a Sunday dinner and people to go to when you're struggling with your bills or just that adolescent coming into young adulthood that's stuff that you need and what I see t far too much is that there's nothing there for those people um, that there's, there's not that connectedness to a community 
and there's isolation and loneliness there. And I think communities can provide that. It doesn't have to always be statutory social services. But I think we're quite away from getting there. Um, yeah, I think that, that community-owned and community-run kind of family-oriented uh, places of love and empathy mm. and care uh, 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 is the ideal, right? Mm. And yeah, and up to, you know, 25, 26. You know, that's, that's the reality, isn't it? That's when we need, you know, and longer. You know, you don't, you don't stop needing your parents at 25 or 18. You know, you need, you need your belonging and your connectedness. Um, I totally, 100% agree. And I love the answer of, like, communities being sort of like, like an answer. Um, I have a question, but before I wanted to, like, also point out that, you know, <laughs> I'm a part of this project now, this theatre project for Care Leavers. And I was asking everyone, oh, what's everyone doing for Christmas? And, mm -hmm. you know, 70% of people say, I don't celebrate Christmas. And it's because, you know, we don't have family. We're care leavers. There's nowhere for us to really go. And Christmas is like this commercialized holiday of your mm -hmm. families and everything. And it's just such a shame. And I don't celebrate Christmas either because of this. But um, if we had this community, you know, that we were a part of, then it would, we would feel like we could belong and celebrate. Um, have you seen this play out, like this community? Have you seen this play out anywhere in the world? Um, successfully? No, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, on the Christmas note, you know, there are lots of local authorities do Christmas dinners, I think, for um, care leavers. And I know Lemsisse um, does it because, you know, my experience is that some care leavers do have a family to go to, but that can still be difficult and you can still feel very lonely in that environment or you can go somewhere else for Christmas Day and feel quite lonely in that environment. Um, and the feedback I've heard from people who go to those is that that you know there's a commun there's community in that. I think there's community in the work that we do here at Peer Power, but it's it's resource and time limited, and that's mm -hmm. and we try everything to be relationship over everything else and to have it um, everything community and relationship driven. I tell you where I do know of some really amazing kind of relational practice and, and where things are moving. Um, in Camden, social services are doing a lot of work now and they're calling it relational activism. And I love that term. And they've got a, um, Clarissa who works with us here at Peer Power as well. Um, I think she and some of her peers coined a term, to love is to act. So they're really trying to infuse the whole work they do there around social work practice and early intervention around love and relationship and with that in mind always. So I'm really hopeful. I think that's really exciting that they're even looking at practice in that way and actually being quite bold around their language and checking out their language all the time about how they talk about families, how they talk about young people and that things are done in partnership I wanted to um, touch on the topic of like monetizing foster care and like social mm -hmm. services. Um, so Jake and I were having a conversation about um, like a lot of the laws that are put in place when it comes to like being affectionate with the young people. 
yeah. and um, I think because this is all part of everything, you know, they're being paid. So it's like you have to follow these legislations. You can't touch the young people. You can't hug them and things like that. But you know, once you take money out of it and it's just care, love, empathy, then they, you know, the young people are able to feel like they belong and like they are cared for and they are looked after properly and loved. Mm. Do you feel like? Do you feel like that's the case? You feel like more of that needs to be? Yeah, with some provisors, I mean, <laughs> uh, there are some unsuitable people that might try and go and work in that field, not work, but try and um, support young people. So they would, I think there would still need to be some money involved because you'd need to do the appropriate... Somebody would need to do some appropriate checks on people's backgrounds. Kind um, of oversight. Yeah, and it's hard, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you know, should communities own that. But there's a duty of care, and rightly so, for people um, who, who are in those... So say they're in those systems, but we're looking for the, that, that belonging in the community. If that happens unregulated, that could be difficult too. So, like, I think it's a huge debate amongst foster carers as well, like mm. that kind of professional versus personal yeah. thing of, like, yeah. right, well, are we professionals who get paid a salary to look after young yeah. people? And if so, like, are we trained in that way? And, like, because I think a lot of foster carers just feel kind of abandoned as well, um, and they're living in trauma, Um or are they family members, you know, and, and are they can they treat young people like family and uh, th and therefore are able to, like, show them affection and give them hugs and not have to write a report on their interaction every <laughs> yeah. day, you know, like... Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about trauma-responsive work and relational work, humans need connection, you know. We're going we're gonna to die if we don't have it. We're going we're gonna to wilt, you know. We need connection we need touch it's part of it's part of our beings um but there has to be sadly and it is sadly um there has to be safeguards around it so we could say here oh because somebody might make an allegation we're not going to hug anybody but actually we know that hugging is really important but we have a culture now around asking People know that you, you, come to, you generally get a hug at PayPal, but it's about consent mm. and making sure that's okay for that person because it's not for everybody. And we've also now, and it's really sad that we've had to do this, but hugging's not allowed in some contexts, for example, in school, some schools, not every school, some schools. So we've got guidelines around appropriate hugging, um, being, you know, because if you don't have that, the sad reality is that there are unsuitable people out there to work with children 100%. and people. I've had some in my family. I know that all too well. And so it's really, really... So I'm really conscious of that. But we shouldn't deprive young people of that love and connection because that, that badness um, exists. Uh, you know, some people will... Some, some people, unfortunately, will um, try and manipulate those situations we've got to do it safely and that inevitably would then cost some money but it doesn't the idea of and I can't speak on behalf of foster carers because I'm not a foster carer I hope to mm. be one day 
that's definitely my plan. Yeah. Um, but I can't speak because I haven't had that personal experience of being a foster carer, so I don't know that that system and I don't know their worlds well enough to sort of comment on how that is for them. But, I mean, yeah, so I think... I, so, I, so I'm obviously familiar with the debate around monetising it. And it's difficult because young people often say, you know, the bits that really make a difference for them is when people sort of go that extra mile or they know they did it out of their working hours or things like that because then then somebody hasn't been paid to care for you mm-hmm. and that's a difficult concept isn't it do yeah. they really care or is it just because they're paid amazing i think we'll wrap it up there um i mean i, I could talk for hours with you <laughs> you're uh, really really interesting and it's been um, a really valuable conversation i think uh yeah thank you so much Amory. thank you thank you for your Thank you for listening to Transforming Care. Transforming Care is an autonomous media production hosted by myself, Jake Lake, and Joy Milani. You can find us at autonomousmedia.org, on Twitter at media underscore autonomy, and on Instagram at autonomous underscore media underscore London underscore. They're long, I know. I hope you enjoyed the show and tune in next week.